chapter 3, John, the Gospel of John, and chapter 3. We're going to continue with the series of uh, messages in John. Um, It's not particularly a Mother's Day message, but it's not that it's not not for mothers or anybody that has a mother, right? Okay, so uh, that clears that up. John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 through 21. Now, if you can just imagine a uh, fellow uh, floating downstream on a tube or some kind of a, uh, maybe a canoe or something, maybe a raft, I don't know. You know, summer is coming, even though we had summer on Friday, uh, and a ride down the Nemecogon River uh, kind of looked like it would be pretty inviting uh, on Friday. I don't know how many of you have ever taken a canoe ride or a tube ride down the, that river, but uh, there's a lot of people that do uh, in the summer. And uh, anyway, here's this fellow having the time of his life, enjoying his ride as uh, the cool water kind of just splashes up on him. And you're over there on shore, and you know something he doesn't know. You know that uh, there's a deadly waterfall not far downstream. That's probably not the Nemecogon because I don't think there's any dangerous waterfalls there. So we're not talking about that river. But this particular river has a dangerous waterfall, and this fellow doesn't know about it. He's just kind of going blissfully, ignorantly along, and yet he doesn't know he's headed for certain destruction. So you yell. You warn him. Hey, there's a a waterfall down there. Here, catch this rope. I'm going to throw a rope to you. And he just says, forget it, rejects it, keeps on going. And no doubt to his certain death. Why won't you grab the life savior? Because he loves what he's doing. He doesn't want to believe your warning. Well, why do people reject God's wonderful offer of salvation through Jesus Christ? You would think that everyone would just eagerly grab the life preserver that God has thrown out through the Gospels. We find there in John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why would anyone reject such a wonderful offer? Why would anyone want to keep heading for eternal destruction? Well, here in our text, we're going to find that people reject Christ because they love their sin and they hate having it exposed by God's life. Look at verse 19. It says, And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may be that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. People don't want God interfering with what they consider a good time. They don't believe the warnings of Scripture and that they're under God's judgment right now and will face it eternally when they die. People think that they're basically good people. 
I really haven't killed anybody. I haven't done anything really bad. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't done anything that really is terrible. Oh, maybe I told a little white lie or I did a little something here or there. Maybe I stole some cookies or something, you know, but I'm really pretty a, a pretty good guy. You know that? People will actually think that. People think they're basically good. Uh, they think God was going to overlook their faults. God's going to give them good credit. Extra credit, teacher. God's going to give extra credit if they are, keep doing good. Maybe I can get by on some extra credit. So they don't repent of their sin, and they don't believe in Jesus Christ to save them from God's eternal judgment. Some once observed, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. So John makes four points here. Number one, the light of the world. The light came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and his presence condemned those in darkness. Again, in verse 19, it says, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. John has already introduced light Jesus as the light in chapter 1 and verse 4 and 5, where he said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Later in chapter 8, verse 12, and also uh, in chapter 9, verse 5, and in chapter 12 and verse 46, Jesus states basically, I am the light of the world. And so in the Bible, light is a symbol It's used symbolically in two main ways. Number one, God's absolute holiness. It refers to God's absolute holiness and by extension to the holiness of his people, whereas darkness symbolizes Satan's domain and sin. Colossians 1.13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Acts 26.18 says, To who to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them, which was sanctified by faith that is in me. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, that God dwelleth in the light which no man can approach. 1 John 1 and verse 5, the apostle declares, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And in that same vein, Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7 through 10, Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye are sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So in the Bible, light is a symbol for God's absolute holiness. Secondly, it's a a symbol for spiritual illumination. Light refers to the spiritual illumination or the understanding that we get when we're born again. Darkness refers to our natural spiritual blindness before we were saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so in that sense, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Proverbs 6.23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. God's word gives spiritual light so that we can understand God's truth. We can know how he wants us to live. God's light is embodied in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. John told us back in chapter 1 and verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. When Jesus came into the world, his very presence exposed the world to who God is as holy and to the fact that we are not holy. It shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by the light. But some receive this revelation and therefore thereby testify that their deeds have gone, uh, have been done through God. In John's gospel, it's repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. Now here in verse 19, we find the word condemnation. It's sometimes translated judgment in other passages. And here it signifies the process of judgment, not the sentence of condemnation. It's not God's sentence, which John is concerned with here. He is telling us rather how the process works. Men choose the darkness and their condemnation lies in that very fact. They refuse to be shaken out of their comfortable sinfulness. Now, as we saw in chapter 3 here, verse 17 and 18, even though Jesus did not come for the purpose of condemning or judgment because of who he is, his very presence brought judgment and divided people. I wonder if you've ever been in the presence of a godly, very godly person, and their presence kind of made you uncomfortable. Now, over the years as a Christian, as a pastor, I've realized that there are times when even my presence uh, can be unsettling to some people. I remember when I was getting my undergrad degree at a state university, and my desire was to go to seminary after I graduated. And so I took courses that would probably help me prepare for the ministry and uh, good things like English, you know, uh, lovely courses like English and literature. But I had a professor who, uh, in the state university, uh, on more than one occasion would apologize in front of the class for his language because he knew it was my intention to go to the ministry. I said, oh, I forgot we have a seminary or pre-seminary student here. And so he'd apologize for his, his language. I made him uncomfortable. Uh, when I pastored in Indiana, I uh, uh, made a practice to have therapy every Monday morning with a group of retired men from the community. And I think as a pastor, I made them uncomfortable. By the way, if you're visiting, you don't know what therapy is. Uh, it's chasing a little white ball around a, a pasture with a big, long stick. But anyway, I think I made some of these men uncomfortable especially when they made a bad shot and they would angrily say something in another language and then look at me and they'd apologize. Sometimes I've had police officers apologize for their language when I have been with them. But just think, how much more would we all have felt condemned in the very presence of Jesus Christ? If you had the opportunity to be one of the disciples 
and to be in his presence while he was here on earth. By the way, you are in his presence every day. Do you remember one of Peter's earlier early encounters with Jesus when Jesus caused the miraculous catch of fish? Peter fell down at Jesus' feet and said in Luke 5, 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Have you ever had that experience with the Lord Jesus? Have you ever seen who Jesus is and instantly recognize he is holy and I am not holy? I am under God's judgment because Jesus is light and I am darkness. And so you've had that kind of encounter with Jesus. You can go one of two ways. And so John presents the negative reaction first. He says, he talks about the love of darkness. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John 1.19 says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Uh, this phrase contains several very significant truths about sin. First of all, there's the root of sin. Sin is deeper than outward deeds. Sin is a matter of our affections and our desires. It says here that men loved darkness. The past tense uh, uh, could be translated, men set their love on darkness. Loved indicates that this was not just a cool, rational decision. Having weighed all the factors involved, I think the best decision is to love darkness rather than light. No. It was in a large part an emotional choice that stems from their desires. The desires that dwell in our hearts due to the fall. We love darkness rather than light. This leads to a very significant truth as well, and that is the depth of sin. Sin is deeper than we imagined. The Bible does not teach that we are basically good people who need to overcome a few flaws in our character. We're not merely in need of more education or learning, uh, maybe learning some anger management skills so that we can develop better relational skills. We don't need to go through that kind of therapy to explore our past and figure out why our parents treated us they, as they did so that we can now understand why, why we are the way we are. See, that's the world's approach. That's not a believer's approach. That's not the Bible's approach. All those approaches to sin are superficial. The Bible shows us that the root of our problem is that we love our sin rather than God's holiness. It's a matter of the heart. And the only remedy that goes deep enough is to be born again, as Jesus had told Nicodemus, to give us new hearts that hunger and thirst after righteousness. This phrase also shows us the third truth about sin, and that's the reason of sin. The reason people reject Christ is not primarily intellectual, but it's moral. Unbelievers do not love darkness rather than light because they have thought it through carefully and they've concluded, you know, darkness makes more sense. No, unbelievers love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The light exposes their evil deeds and convicts them of their true moral guilt before a holy God. Very frankly said, they like sinning. This means that when you're sharing the gospel, 
You shouldn't be intimidated by someone who's got a Ph.D., who argues in favor of evolution or who cites arguments from the latest popular atheist. Don't panic if someone says, I don't believe the Bible because of its contradictions. You can give philosophical arguments for the existence of God or the scientific arguments against evolution all day long. But even if you were able to convince the unbeliever intellectually, you've not dealt with the main problem. His main problem is that he loves his sin and he stands guilty before a holy judge of the universe. Now, I'm not saying we should not give good answers to intellectual questions, but I am saying that's not really the issue. You can ask the person raising the objection, are you saying that if I gave you a reasonable answer to your questions, you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Invariably, the answer would be, well, I have other objections too. The objections are smoke screens to hide the fact that unbelievers love their sin. And so this phrase shows us a fourth truth about sin, and that is the determination of sin. Sin must be determined by God's absolute standards of holiness, not by men's relative standards of goodness. When John says men's deeds are evil, we might recoil and think, well, yes, terrorists, drug dealers, pedophiles, pimps, those people are all evil. But you know, most people aren't those things. Just look at all the good people in the world. The Bible acknowledges that there are unbelievers who are relatively good people. Because of God's common grace, all people are not as evil as they could be. The human race would have self-destructed thousands and thousands of years ago if everyone acted as badly as they could. God restrains outward evil through civil government, through social disapproval, through the fear of shame, the desire to look good to others. But that's not what God's really looking at, is he? He's looking on the heart. Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, "Neither, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When God looks at our hearts, even the best people, humanly speaking, our hearts are still filled with pride, selfishness, greed, lust, and other sins that may never come out in public view. But the situation of loving darkness rather than light is far worse than just loving sin. The love of darkness, but notice there's the hatred of light. Those who practice evil hate Jesus. Jesus, who is light. And they don't come to him for fear that their deeds would be exposed. John 3 and verse 20 says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Unbelievers do not just love their sin, They also hate Jesus. They hate the one who out of love offered himself on the cross so that every sinner might be uh, not perish but have eternal life by simply believing on him. They hate him because he exposes their evil deeds. 
a teacher assigned to his fourth grade students a topic uh, to write a uh, writing exercise, and the topic sentence was followed by the phrases, Billy always works quietly. Billy is polite to the teacher. Billy always does his homework. And so one student's topic sentence was, I hate Billy. He said, people don't like that. We need to understand several things, I think, about this verse, verse 20 here. Number one is not all sin is secret. John does not mean that all sinners do their evil deeds in secret. Many, of course, do. Many otherwise respectable men would never frequent a strip club in their own city for fear of being seen. But if they're traveling from home where they think they're safe, they might yield to that sin. But in our day, when people call good evil and evil good, it's cool to flaunt your sin. Movie stars and celebrities go on television and tell about all their immoral behavior. We have what is called gay pride celebrations. They have parades flaunting their evil. They boast in what God condemns as evil. John is merely pointing out that such sinners do not come to the light, that is Jesus, because they know he would condemn them and their behavior. So not all sin is secret. Secondly, not neutral. We're not neutral toward Jesus. John does not say that those who practice evil are neutral toward Jesus. Rather, they hate him. It's not like, well, what about Jesus? Well, I could take him or leave him. No, you either take him or you leave him. It's one or the other. Many believers would object. They would say, they don't have anything against Jesus. I'm just indifferent. They think, that, oh, Jesus, yeah, he was a good man. Some people think, oh, he was a prophet. He was a good moral teacher. They might even feel bad that, oh, yeah, that's bad that he got crucified for his teachings and his belief. That's, not, that's too bad. That's a real miscarriage of justice there. But they would protest if you said, you know what? You actually hate Jesus. You know, they say, well, we're just indifferent. But John says they hate Jesus. Jesus himself told his then unbelieving brothers in John chapter 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it, me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. So you can't be neutral toward Jesus. The third thing is the fear of exposure. John gives the reason why unbelievers hate Jesus. They fear that he will expose their evil deeds. It's like my uh, uncomfortable professor or the man I played golf with in Indiana. By the way, I still enjoy playing golf, but I'm thankful that I can play golf with Ken Marsky and Drew Morales, men who don't hate Jesus, men who know the Lord. But so sometimes when you get around other people and they know you're a Christian or you know you're, uh, you go to a certain church like Spooner Baptist Church, they say, oh, I've got to watch myself around you. One thing about Ken and Drew and 
we know each other's limitations, and we are certainly glad our golf score doesn't determine our livelihood. In other words, we're not trying to make a living by it. But again, it's like that professor of mine who used to use some colorful language from time to time and then felt bad because he had a student who planned to go into the ministry. He must have thought that his language was a sin, but it never occurred to him that if I wasn't there, God would have been there. In this verse here, the word reprove, well, actually, uh, it, it means to be convicted in the court of law. It was used as an attorney proving his case. John used it in John 16, 8, when he says that the Holy Spirit reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You know, guilty criminals hate judges. How many times have guilty criminals threatened a judge's life because they convicted them of their crimes, even though it wasn't the judge's fault, was it? Guilty sinners hate Jesus because he convicts them of their sins. And then finally, because of God's grace, not all reject Christ. There are those who come to the light. Notice, fourthly, coming to the light. True believers practice the truth and come to the light so that their deeds are shown to have God as their source. Verse 21, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light and his deeds may be made manifest and that they are wrought in God. John does not mean that some have a natural bent toward practicing the truth or uh, that doing so brings salvation. He's made it plain that we all need the new birth. Salvation comes through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But John is describing two types of people in the world. Those who have not believed in Christ avoid the light and they hate it. Because it exposes their sinful deeds. And those that have believed in Christ gladly come to him and give him all the credit for all their good deeds. Because they know that those good deeds come from God. It was God who caused them to be born again. This little phrase, doeth truth, is an expression which means to act faithfully, honorably. But it also shows us that the truth is to be lived, not just spoken. Truth. It's an important concept for John. He uses the word 27 times in his gospel, 21 21 more times in his epistles. Truth is embodied in Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus told Pilate, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I may bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now, that has two implications. Number one is there is absolute truth. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. There is absolute truth. There is such a thing as absolute truth in the spiritual and moral realms, and you can spot believers by their obedience to that truth. And contrary to the postmodern mindset, truth is not relative to the culture or to the situation. All truth is in Jesus, and he declared that God's word is truth. This means that believers are committed to the truth. We seek to understand the truth more deeply. I trust that's why you're here this morning. We hold to the truth of God's word, even when our culture does not. There is absolute truth, and then secondly, a willingness to come 
to the light. Believers willingly, gladly, and repeatedly come to the light of God's word in order to grow in holiness and give God glory for his work in their hearts. True believers read God's word over and over. They allow it to shine into the dark corners of their lives and expose the sinful thoughts and the intentions of the heart. False believers avoid the word. They find churches that don't preach the word to expose sin. False believers try to keep a good front up so they can impress others, but they don't live openly in the light of God's presence on the heart level. So eventually, sinners will get what they desired, whether on earth they love darkness, they will be cast into outer darkness. They hated the light, they will be shut out from the light eternally. God will be perfectly just in condemning those who rejected Christ. They saw the light, but hated it and turned away from it because they loved their own sin. And the coming of Jesus in the world clarifies the unbelief is our fault. Belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ, but rather perish eternally, we magnify God's justice. And if we come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. I trust and I pray that we all believe in Jesus this morning and we rejoice in his light and we will magnify God's grace. Now again, this has not particularly been a message on mother, for mothers on Mother's Day, but it's been for everyone that has a mother. I read this recently. For some, motherhood is an accident and not always a welcome one. For some, biological motherhood isn't possible. For some, mothers weren't all that nice. For some, motherhood under the best, very best of circumstances is still less than a bed of roses and a primrose path. And so with all those qualifications, why bother with Mother's Day at all? I'll tell you why. Because for all the stumbling blocks, all the pitfalls, all the broken dreams, all the soiled diapers, all the soiled wallpaper and spoiled plans, we're talking about a beautiful, ideal, a natural part of God's creative plan to bring love and caring to light. Motherhood is a constant demand for the gift of love and caring. Now what a blessing it is to have a mother who did not reject the light. If you have that kind of a mother that did not reject the light, the truth of God's love for them, and they determined to raise their children from God's glo- for God's glory, thank God for that. Have all children, all the children of godly mother- mothers accepted the truth and the light? Sadly, no. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the best Mother's Day gift you could give your mother is not to reject the light, but come to Christ by faith. If you had a mother who was not saved, no doubt there were some here that had a mother who was not saved, and perhaps she mistreated you. The best thing you could do is accept the truth of the gospel and not reject the light provided for you. Sadly, our world is full of mothers who love their sin. They love darkness. They love their drugs. They love their alcohol more than they love God or their families. And they've rejected the light. 
What is your need this morning? Are you going to, uh, are you doing and practicing the truth of God's word? Have you come to the light that the works of God might be made manifest in your life? Are you a mother who's practicing the truth and allowing God to do a work in your life? Are you a husband, a father, a son, or a daughter who's practicing the truth that we've spoken about? Have you come to the light? I trust you have. Let's pray. Father in heaven.